there's no doubt that the old politics of the two-party system is now gone and over. I don't need lectures from you or anybody on, on the Sinn Féin side of the house. We're very reluctant to kind of say what's red lines, but, but we do have to take climate seriously. There's going to be constant criticism, there's going to be a lot of disappointment, and whoever goes into government is going to be unpopular. Okay. Hello, this is Anya Lawler. You're very welcome to the Your Politics podcast from the RTE politics team here at Leinster House. And I'm joined by our own Sandra Hurley and Paul Cunningham. Shortly, we'll be joined by Senator and former Justice Minister Michael McDowell. Um, and Sandra, as we speak... Up above us in the Dáil Chamber, there are statements going on on the whole nursing homes controversy and the disability payments controversy. But it seems the political heat has gone out of this issue for the moment. Yes, very much so. I think the debate has been a little bit flat today. Certainly there's a lot of anger in the opposition. They haven't bought into this uh, defence put forward by the Attorney General, Rossa Fanning. They're calling it a blinkered report, that it's it emphasises cost containment. But from the government perspective, and this was echoed by the health minister, Stephen Donnelly, today, they have successfully, I think, managed to kind of kick this down the road for a bit because the, the message now from government is that the health minister and the social protection minister are going to go off for three months to consider both the report, any other relevant documents, and then come back uh, with possible proposals at that stage. Interesting, though, that last week it seemed very clear that we were moving towards some sort of ex gratia scheme for those uh, who mm-hmm. didn't get their disability payments. This week, certainly, that's moved back, I think, a little bit. The Attorney General, Rossa Fanning, said that there was no positive legal obligation here. And I think the government has sort of tempered its language around right. this as well. All right. Uh, But one thing that um, certainly there have been a lot of people talking about here today, Paul, is uh, the return of Bertie Ahern. Yes, Bertie Ahern. And it's worth actually taking a step back and thinking about this. I mean, this guy was the Teflon Taoiseach, three times winner. He was a political phenomenon. He was someone who would grab your hand with a firm grip and say, how's the working man? He was the guy who, unlike his predecessor, Charlie High, he didn't have horses. He didn't have an island. He was the guy in the bomber jacket, drinking bass, going to the GA games. He had the common touch. He was a fixer, someone who was able to do all of those partnership agreements, get things over the line and had a particular interest in Northern Ireland, which led to the Good Friday Agreement. Obviously, hits the Matin Tribunal, wheels come off the bus, and cast into outer darkness the party which he'd been a part of wanted to expel him but he left before that actually happened roll on a decade and suddenly he's back in for 20 quid and he put in the application it was accepted and we've got him back in the party and I think what most people are aware of is that we've got the 25th anniversary of the Good Friday Agreement it's coming up in April and so this is a nice little segue to bring him back into the fold no cancel culture in Fianna Fáil was, uh, I think, John Lahart's quote. And a, a lot of Fianna Fáil TDs, Sandra, seem, you know, very happy at the return of uh, Bertie Ahern to the party fold. Uh, but at the same time, a, a lot of public reaction much more mixed. And with all this speculation about a presidential run in 25, just wondering, is that even feasible? Yeah, I don't think the presidential run is feasible. I think many people would think that that's very unlikely. The presidential campaigns in recent decades have been very bruising and every possible skeleton in the closet has emerged during those campaigns. Bertie Hearn would not, I think, put himself up for that. But I think the difficulty for the broader public is not just those findings of the Mahan Tribunal, that he didn't tell the truth, that uh, that he got these digouts. Uh, it's also in relation to his stewardship of the country in the run-up to the economic crash and the subsequent bailout. 
Of course, Bertie Hearn left his Taoiseach in May 2008. His explanation to the banking inquiry was that the economy was sound when he passed it over to Brian Cowan. But there's no question that the policies pursued by his government poured more heat onto the the fire at the time that they didn't cool down the economy. They were the wrong policies at the wrong time. And people really suffered in the aftermath of that through all the cuts, through all the austerity. So uh, I think the wider public uh, would be much more sceptical about about the return of Bertie Ahern. And I think one thing to add on to that is just the very nature of those presidential contests, Anya. I mean, they're personal. This isn't really about policy because the role of the president is so curtailed. This is personal. It's three weeks and it can get really ugly. So from day one, if Bertie Ahern was to put his name forward, all those Mahon reports, findings, quotations, witnesses, all of that stuff would just be wall to wall. So I think no. All right. Um was it going to be a yes or a no on cost of living? The government's got two weeks to make its mind up. Isn't that what the Taoiseach was saying? Yeah, it's going to be discussed next week. That doesn't necessarily mean there'll be a decision. It could be the week after. And a couple of the big things to look out for is whether or not um, the assistance on fuel, whether that's going to be um, rolled over. And then obviously another energy credit if there's going to be another 200 Just on the fuel thing, is that Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael versus the Greens? Is that a straight down the line? Pretty much. And what's interesting is sometimes when these policy issues get decided, it comes down to the leaders and there's three leaders. And if Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael are saying yes and Eamon Ryan is saying no, then that might be something he's going to have to buckle on. But if he holds out long enough, maybe there's some transaction that can also, um, he can secure, maybe making it limited or something else. So one to watch. But the expectation in Leinster House could be completely wrong. Expectation is fuel will roll over. And we're due one more of the 200 energy, uh, cre- 200 euro energy credits in March, but people's bills still haven't come down, even though the wholesale price has. So pressure in terms of the energy area, Sandra? Yes, and I think remember as well that we had the VAT cut on energy bills. That's due to run out at the end of February. So I think there'll be a lot of pressure to maintain some help for energy. Uh, I think also the business scheme, this business energy scheme known as, as TBES, I think that's likely to be continued because the take-up has been very low so Sounds like that might need tweaking or readjusting. Exactly. A huge amount of criticism from businesses that there's too much red tape, it's too difficult to fit the criteria, but they do still need help. Uh, The eviction ban, it looks as though maybe the government is moving towards some sort of extension here. The Labour Party today was calling for the ban to be extended until the end of the year. At the moment, it's supposed to taper off between March and June, but I could see the government doing something on that. Uh, and then the VAT cut on hospitality. Now, this is an area that's fiercely contested. I think this Loads one's of lobbying. going to be a big topic. Yes, yes. and yeah. internally within the parties, we've had um, people like the Christopher O'Sullivan, the Fianna Fáil TD, saying that he was flying the flag for West Cork, saying it was the wedding capital of Ireland. He wanted the, the VAT cut extended for that reason. Uh, we've had senators raise, raising it, government senators raising it in the Shannon. And of course, you've got all those lobby groups. The government want to get rid of this. It's very clear that the two financial ministers... Michael McGrath and Pascal Donoghue do not want this to continue, but they are under pressure uh, from all that lobbying. I'm wondering whether they might not end up splitting the difference. You know, obviously there's been the whole issue around hotel prices and hotel supply and the hotels want uh, a bumper tourism season. Uh, and But then there's also the pressure that restaurants are under. So whether there might be some change there. But isn't politics the art of the possible? Maybe we can find <laughs> some nice little compromise somewhere in the middle and everyone's happy when we move on. No compromise at the moment on mortgage interest relief. That's being ruled out according to well, the Taoiseach. Although not no, completely. There's a little door. There's a little gap. And so what we expect is that 
the decision itself would be uh, they're leaving it as an option and the option will be decided in the run up to the budget and therefore are you just going to assist people who have had their mortgages sold to um, vulture funds and they're paying up around 7% what about people on trackers are you going to assist them um, Sinn Féin making a clear play for both of those groups mm-hmm. um, Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael saying you haven't costed it it's somewhere around 650 million an intervention they say um, Sinn Féin yet to come back with their figure but that's still very much in play I think just at the moment the next two weeks fuel, energy credit, that's about it. Except we do have, and, and that whole business about mortgage interest relief kind of brings up the contradiction that we have at the moment. That on the one hand, we have the European Central Bank pushing up interest rates, and on the other hand, we have the government, you know, spending uh, its revenues, uh, trying to balance out the effect of that right across the board. So we, uh, I think we're going to come back, aren't we, throughout the rest of the year to this question of targeting and what works. Yes, exactly. And uh, on mortgage interest relief, the view of some economists is that it very much helps those on higher incomes. They're likely to have bigger mortgages anyway. And that particularly that you wouldn't uh, roll it out during a time of constrained housing supply because it's only going to push up prices. So I think there's a lot of policy reasons why the government wouldn't want to move towards it. Sinn Féin, of course, saying that this is targeted, it's temporary, it's not the same as it was when it was introduced 20 years ago. Uh, But then on that other point about uh, the ECB, you think of Christine Lagarde last week warning people to roll back all these interventions promptly. The government has a lot of money to disperse. They're under political pressure to do so. So they are going to continue some of these supports, but they're going to have to taper some of them off as well. I think that's going to be great crack. I mean, we do have our new finance minister, Michael McGrath, and the ECB is giving instructions and um, he didn't seem to like it. Uh, he didn't like being told what he should and should not do. And um, in Michael McGrath's way, he's such a gentleman. He's not doesn't use caustic words, but you could see there was a pushback. And I think if you're looking at Frankfurt and Frankfurt's way, it's going to be raise those rates, stop the supports, and you're going to see the Irish government increasingly, in my view, coming into friction with that. Senator McDougall is on his way into us at the moment, but before I introduce him and say hello formally, um, I want to talk about the issue. I mean, it's an issue that Taoiseach has been talking about in the Dáil yesterday and at that EU Council meeting in Brussels, and this is the issue of migration. And it's a problem not just this government is trying to resolve, but governments right across Europe. Yes, it's very much on the agenda today in Brussels, but I think what we've seen from the government here over the past couple of weeks is much more hardening in the language towards uh, people coming to Ireland and much more of an emphasis, particularly from the Justice Minister, uh, Simon Harris, on checking documents, on rooting out people who are arriving here in fake documents. He's talking about doing more checks uh, from the Guardi on the tarmac uh, when people arrive. Uh, Questions, of course, being asked about why this hasn't been done so much in the run-up to now. It was dropped, I think, over the last couple of years, but there's certainly has been a change around the tone Mm -hmm. around all of this and the government I think very cognizant of the difficulties that it is causing around the country. Yeah I think that what's interesting was that we did get some documentation in relation to the staffing at the Department of Justice within the section which is looking after it and while the number of staff had increased for applications when it came to appeals the number had gone down by 8%. They've got a backlog of 850 cases so when we hear the Justice Minister Simon Harris saying he wants to speed up this process. So the the appeals go up and the staffing goes down. down. And so uh, there's a question mark, let's put it that way, over the ability of the minister to deliver on this promise. Well, this is a good point to say hello to Senator and former Justice Minister Michael McDowell. And you were writing about this uh, in the Irish Times during the week. You say we're in the middle of a crisis. 
what needs doing and what's your assessment of what you've been hearing in this change of tone perhaps from the government this week? Well, first of all, we obviously have a crisis because, I mean, the idea that people are being asked to sleep uh, in warehouses and all the rest of it uh, underlines the fact that we have a crisis. But um, I think there there's plenty of indications that uh, it's not just in the last year, but it's 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 exponentially growing now to the point that in in the, in the 2000s, 2002, there was a large surge in asylum seeking. The Department of Justice got on top of it and the numbers declined right up to the economic crisis when it went really um, very low. But now um, we're back up at 13,000 applications a year. And that's a huge number because we, we are simply not in a position to process them. We're not in a position to uh, uh, accommodate them. Um, uh, and we, uh, the reality is that uh, there's plenty of indications that the great majority of it is not actually people seeking refuge from persecution, but it's uh, economically driven. I mean, the figures show that when we were in a, an economic crisis, the amount of people who wanted to come here uh, plummeted. And uh, I was listening on a radio uh, competitor of RTEs the other day. Don't, mind, don't mention new, the name. Okay, new, new, yeah, <laughs> and uh, it was interesting to see um, you know, the, the number of people who were interviewed informally about why they were coming here, and they were coming here for economic reasons. So we've got to cop ourselves on. Uh, you know, uh, we are, we have an asylum system which looks perfect, perfect on paper, but it simply isn't working at all. And so what would make it work? You're, you were writing that the 2015 International Protection Act is failing. What needs to change? Well, I mean, for the reasons that Paul was just mentioning, I mean, if, if you can't, if somebody comes in from Georgia, which is a safe country, and you say um, that we'll deal with you on an expedited basis, we'll give you an interview date, that person gets in, becomes entitled to uh, reside in Ireland, gets entitled, becomes entitled to direct provision, and... Um, in many cases, in a, is in a position to take up a job in Ireland uh, unlawfully because they don't are at that stage of, the, of, of their of their um, stay in Ireland. They're not entitled to work, but they, they they find it economically beneficial to do so. And we don't we don't we don't deport people in any significant numbers. Uh, we are allowing people to come to um, to Dublin Airport, get off a plane, they've used their passport and their ID to get on the plane, and they claim, whether it's true or not, I don't believe it's true, that they've lost their pa passport and ID on the plane. And uh, that sets back the whole process of determining whether there's any uh, validity to their application by, by weeks or months. Can you inquire just a little bit, sorry for interrupting, mm -hmm. only just inquire a little bit about the statement you made there that Georgia is a safe country. I mean, the former president, Yorgi Shashkavili, is in hospital and according to Volodymyr Zelensky, the Ukrainian um, leader, he is dying due to metals poisoning. And according to the last Amnesty International report, if you are a member of the opposition, you are open to wiretapped, open to intimidation and open to arrest. Now, if this is a, a country which is led, being led by a government which is tilting towards Moscow and adopting some of those repressive mm. techniques, then surely you're going to see, possibly, a rise in the number of people who would want to flee to Ireland for totally valid reasons under international law. Well, the numbers, I mean, 20% of our, our, our asylum applications uh, of recent times have come from Georgia. Georgia is a safe country and recognises that throughout the European Union. So it's is Amnesty wrong then? And, 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 and I'm just making the point that, I mean, anybody from Georgia is entitled to, to travel visa-free to anywhere in Europe. So why Ireland? And the reason is that Ireland's system is the least capable of actually um, examining their case in any uh, effective way and 
uh, rejecting them and uh, deporting them. But you if, say if our, our, our system on paper, it, it's one thing, but then there's the system of what happens in actual practice. So in terms of what happens in practice, for instance, what Paul was saying about the appeals process, we know about these yeah. chronic delays and we know that even though the number of appeals has more than doubled, the, the number of staff working there has gone down. Well, that, well, that's the point. And you see, the other thing about all of this is that the departmental responsibility has been split between um, uh, Simon Harris's department now and Roderick O'Gorman's. And Roderick O'Gorman... But we keep hearing about this whole-of-government approach, don't well, we? Well, I, I don't think it exists, to be honest with you. I, I think there's a... I mean, why was it that even... I mean, up to recently, there was a system, up while Charlie Flanagan was minister, there was a, a very inadequate system of spot checks uh, um, um, two days a week uh, to, to look for documents uh, involving Gardaí. That was discontinued... Um, when this government came into office for reasons that have never been explained. It may have been that it was just pointless because spot checks two days a week are really, um, you know, a paper response to a really serious problem. But, um, uh, you know, Roderick O'Gorman on the one hand is talking about uh, um, the possibility of climate refugees. Uh, Leo Varadkar is now talking about being, I think, uh, fair, firm and hard. Uh, you know, we've got to get our, our, our act together. And the other thing I want to emphasize... What does that mean, on, though? You know, like, you know, what does getting our act together I mean, mean? First of all, that if you, come, if you come here from Albania, which, again, is deemed to be a safe country, uh, and uh, your, your application uh, is dealt with in a matter of, of you know, 21 days, uh, is there any substance in this? If not, you're going home. We have to have a system like that. I mean, so emergency you know, legislation. I mean, you know, to ima that imagine effect. an Irish person turning up in the in, in America and saying that they'd like to to uh, claim asylum, and Ireland is regarded as a safe country. They'll be back on the plane uh, within twenty four hours. We we have we have a system which is fine on paper, but it's simply not working. Uh, and and by the way, another thing I just want to uh, there are two things I want to say. First of all, immigration. We need an immigration policy. There are shortages at the moment of building workers. There are shortages right across the uh, the, uh, the the board economically of uh, of skills that we we need. Immigrants provide a hugely important um, uh, part of our economy at the moment in the care sector and building sector and things like that. So, I mean, I'm, I'm not anti-immigration, but we can't have a system whereby if you claim claim to be an asylum seeker, you become entitled to direct provision. And uh, you, at the same time, uh, informally enter our labour market. And then, then you say, uh, why are the figures so high? Because we, we have, a, we have a, a, a theoretical response to, to abuse of asylum. You talk about the 40% who, who arrive here without valid or, or any documentation. Uh, Roderick O'Gorman was talking about this in the door today and he says people often have to flee countries on fake documents because they're being chased and repressed by a particular regime. He was saying, for instance, a protester fleeing, fleeing Iran. They wouldn't have documentation. And we've heard the examples of traffickers and so on. But hold on a second. We're not dealing with 40% of people coming from Iran. We're talking about people coming from Albania. We're talking about people who can actually travel across the, uh, the border from Georgia with, with uh, visa-free. So they don't, they don't need false documentation. There'd be no reason for them to have false documentation to get to Ireland. Uh, and uh, that, that, that doesn't stand up. There are a tiny minority of cases where somebody would have to have fraudulent travel documents to, say, escape from Hong Kong or China or somewhere like that uh, um, uh, if they were on some wanted list. 
But I mean, uh, the great majority of the people we're dealing with don't fall into that category at all. And we have to have a system which actually differentiates between the two. And I mean, it, yes, I accept what Rodrigo Gorman says, that there, there are a small number of people who can get on a plane with entirely false documentation, but they get onto the plane with it and somehow they, 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 they dispose of it, we're supposed to believe, by the time the, the flight is over. I mean, that's, that's incredible stuff. If they if they if they had if they had to use false documentation to get on in Paris or, or, or Amsterdam or whatever, and false ID, um, I don't see any reason why uh, they would uh, dispose of it uh, theoretically. Does it not make sense that they need the false documentation to exit from a particular country, but when they come to Ireland, they want to use their real identity to claim asylum? Well, how do we know who they are real, in their real identity? They have no, no identity left at all. But in some regimes, we are told that they are unable to get their genuine documents, and that, that is part of the persecution they are, they, they that they are trying to flee. Yeah, but Sandra, those are not the places from which uh, the, um, the, uh, the, major, the major economic migration patterns are coming. I mean, we have to, we have to be real about this. I mean, it's a, bit, it's a bit like saying, you know, that you might have an excuse for not having an insurance disc on your car. Maybe you do. But Garthi have to stop you and have to do. There has to be some response to it. You can't just say, "Oh well, I left it. I left it at home," and that's the end of the but matter. It seems to me that we, on the one hand, we're tending to flip here. At the moment, what we're talking about is trying to process, as you suggested, applications within 21 days. If you don't no, pass I'm, phase I'm, one, I'm, 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 I'm saying I, I, at the moment they are hoping to get it back to three months for a yes. full, full decision. I'm saying that a different system. First of all, the onus should be on an applicant coming from a state, uh, safe country, what we regard and what Europe regards as a safe country, to come up with a, a strong case. And for, the first thing is to identify themselves in a way that the Irish, the Irish state can check up and say, is this bogus or is this uh, not bogus? But that would take legislation, would it? No, it wouldn't. Um, uh, it wouldn't take uh, legislation. I mean, there are plenty of... Um, so what that, what's that about resourcing, of, uh, staffing? Uh, uh, Resourcing, staffing, um, and and what we uh, well, what we do, maybe it would take some legislation in respect of uh, requiring people who were apparently uh, coming with an incredible story to remain in a particular place. Because the Refugee so Council is already talking, aren't they? I mean, there have been certain changes made in the procedure already in terms of the length of time people have to, to make the appeal and they're saying it's limiting access uh, to legal yeah. representation and this can actually, you know, somebody who's arrived in a distressed state, if they have to do it faster without proper legal representation, they may not put down on the piece of paper that really important thing that will decide whether they stay or go, their full case. Well, the issue in relation to legal representation is complex. I mean, there is a refugee legal service. We are very generous in providing full uh, legal uh, services for asylum seekers. But, um, I mean, the reality is that uh, we are now regarded as a soft touch across Europe. And a Department of Justice as, uh, um, uh, official put, put, the other, put the flip side of that coin. He was asked why, or she or she was asked, why it was that Ireland was experiencing this spike and said that other countries were less welcoming in Europe. I mean, I, I, I regard us as not particularly welcoming or unwelcoming, but just uh, uh, operating a system which is 
simply in failure. But and but if, you, if you if you go home... But I don't think that the system is in failure. I think it's arguable that if you go back to the 1990s and 2000s, we had a deliberative system which tried to extend the amount of time that asylum seekers took to actually get processed because it was a deterrence to others. And we did have systems where people were in 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12 years before they actually reached a determination. And now we're trying to flip it from a decade into a much shorter term. Well, I don't accept that at all. I don't accept when I was minister that we had that we were actually in favour of, of delaying things so that it would, it would uh, uh, exhaust people. Quite the reverse. We were trying to do deportations. And we, we faced injunctions uh, on the morning of flights that we had to take, you know, six of, of 20 people on a, on a, on a deportation flight off, off, off the plane. I can assure you, Paul, it, it has never been part of the Department of Justice's strategy to, to stretch things out. And the problem but is, that, no, 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 let's deal with, with direct provision, for instance. It was criticised universally. Everybody clam, clamoured on that, on that bandwagon and said, this must change, this is unfair, mm. because people are, are, are in these conditions for an extended period of time. But the reality is that now um, that... Uh, 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 that a significant number of people in direct provision have already been said, uh, been told you can stay here, but just simply can't get out of direct provision because they can't find. Uh, um, uh, and this uh, brings me back accommodation at a reasonable cost. This brings me back to what the Catherine Day group was filing, and they were saying, you know, we need purpose-built accommodation. They also said, and. Michal Ahan was telling us in the podcast a week or so ago about the cabinet briefing that numbers will double this year. Numbers yeah. will double. So, you know. You said we were able to get numbers down, but numbers are up and they're going to continue going up. And this is something we are going to have to get, learn to deal with. Politically, the fallout from that so far, and particularly coming into the local elections and Europeans next year. Well, I mean, it is, well, first of all, I just want to say that a failure by the state to run a proper system of migration, first of all, channels to come into Ireland and, uh, and to, to have a controlled and uh, effective system of preventing abuse of asylum seeking on the other plays directly into the hands of right-wing extremists, uh, uh, not merely in Ireland, but anywhere on the political spectrum across Europe. It's manna from heaven, heaven for, 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 for uh, um, extremists who want to stir up hatred and resentment to say that, you know, we're being, we're being flooded. But wasn't the Taoiseach saying in the Dáil yesterday, right-wing extremists will, you know, they'll find any issue. If it's not housing, well, it'll mean, be yeah, crime, yeah, but, but, it'll but, but be I, something else. I assure you, it's not a matter of right-wing extremists, really. It's a matter of, uh, of um, the middle ground in Ireland saying, uh, why is Ireland incapable of dealing with, uh, with asylum-seeking? We're not on direct uh, flight routes from any of these places. They are travelling through the European Union to get to Ireland. And they are travelling here for a particular reason. And the particular reason is that we are particularly um, weak uh, in terms of our um, management of the, of the problem uh, and uh, in, in terms of enforcing our laws. And I mean, that, that's, that, that's, those are the facts. And if, if, if they're going to say, I mean, I have a graph here which shows how, how bad it, uh, the, the asylum seeking was uh, in the run-up to 2002. Um, and John O'Donoghue was battling with a, a very inadequate law. Uh, I mean, we'd never had asylum seeking of a significant kind. Uh, it was tiny uh, in, in the mid-1990s. And suddenly we had this wave. And um, we are now going to be significantly higher than uh, we ever were before, even though uh, in the intervening years we did try to get on top of And that may be the reality of, the of this century. 
Well, it, it, well, you see, I don't agree with that at all. I don't agree with the proposition that uh, uh, it is legitimate to confuse um, migration for economic reasons with as asylum seeking under the 1951 convention and international protection. I don't, I, I, I mean, there's... But isn't there's, that our history? No, there's an, well, it's not. And again, people talk, oh, what about the Irish who went to America? America wanted the Irish people there. Uh, um, we are not in a position to just say to, to say sub-Saharan Africa, uh, you're, you're in climate problems, you have drought, you have famine, uh, Ireland is the place to come. We can't do that. Uh, as part of the EU. We can't do it economically. We don't have the resources in the terms of accommodation to, to, to do that. And by the way, we would, it, it would fly in the face of any sensible immigration policy just to simply say, uh, you know, uh, people should be able to come to Ireland in the same way as Irish people were able post-famine or during the famine to go to the States. That simply uh, is, is, is a bogus analogy, I think. One of the things you were advancing in that article was the issue of consultation. And we have heard continuously over the past number of weeks politicians saying that um, local communities are being negatively affected or turning against the issue of assisting people seeking asylum on the basis that um, people are arriving um, in the middle of the night and they weren't consulted. Your view, as articulated in the paper, was that we're in the middle of a crisis, you don't have time for consultation. Can you sort of tell us more about that? Well, what I'm saying, Paul, is if you are, are actually going to put people into, into warehouses and put them on, on camp beds, um, if you've got to that stage, if things have got that bad, and you know, City West is or is not usable, and you have all the problems that um, are going to now happen in Killarney when the tourist season starts and all of those hotels say we're no longer interested in, in accommodating asylum seekers, um, the state, in relation to the people who are here at the moment, are going to find themselves in a position, and we re recently d did arrive at it, that people had to actually just lie down in the airport and, and, and hope mm. that something would happen or lie down in the street or go to homeless shelters or whatever. We can't, we can't operate on that basis indefinitely. And we do have a crisis. And, and the crisis is this. I mean, I, I instance in, in the article uh, two places and a, a local Labour councillor, uh, Dermot Lacey, had actually asked uh, that these be considered in, in the heart of Dublin 4, Bagot Street uh, and, and, and Pembroke Road. He had asked for, for these to be considered. Um, and I was making the point in the article, I mean, what's consultation? Do you ring up the, uh, the, the four TDs in, in, in Dublin Bay South? Do you, do you talk to um, um, local elected councillors? Or do you actually get moving? This is a crisis. You know, you actually have to have a roof over people's heads. And I mean, but it's um, a life political issue. Like it was debated in the Doyle today. We heard Violet Ann, Violet Ann win from Sinn Féin. We also had Colin Crow from Fianna Fáil. Opposite sides in the context of government and opposition, yeah. but both agreeing on the same point that when it came to Clare, they needed the consultation, otherwise it was going to cause problems. You see the life political well, issue there. I, 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 look, it's, 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 a, it's an easy enough thing for a politician. I have been a politician, <laughs> elected myself, uh, to sort of say, consult the local community. The failure to consult, this is a big problem. But in the end, I look at somewhere, I, 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 um, I know Ruski on the channel because of a house, a holiday home down there. Uh, and um, uh, there was a hotel there, and the local community were quite happy how it's used for asylum seeking, but a few people from outside came in and actually one of them um, tried to firebomb it. But that hotel, I pass it every weekend, it's still vacant um, five years later. And, I, you know, I wonder, you know, 
what it is that Bagot Street Hospital, which uh, accommodated a whole lot of people uh, as patients, can't be used. Uh, um, the uh, the old Jury's Hotel. I mean, we're in the middle of a crisis. If, if the right. government took a compulsory lease of it for six months or whatever, there are places where we could put people. And I'm saying that consultation isn't the issue. Asking the people of Dublin 4 about it really is not uh, a prerequisite for uh, um, putting a roof over people's heads. Here's something I want to ask you before we wrap up. Yeah. Um, the committee, we're getting a new committee on transposing European law into Irish law, with something that people have been talking about and calling for for a long time. Uh, a lot of people think you'd be uh, particularly qualified for the post of chairing it. Well, I, I've um, supported Mark Daly uh, very strongly in trying to uh, have some group of people in Leinster House for whom it makes political sense, because this is not the stuff of which you get first preferences uh, around the country at election time. To look at forthcoming directives from Europe and to, to signal you know, uh, to um, the sectoral committees in Leinster House there's something big coming down the train here in whatever area it is, agriculture, social policy, whatever. And the simple fact is, Anya, that although the Lisbon Treaty provides for relations between national parliaments, member state parliaments and, 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 and the European Parliament uh, and uh, seems to make provision for national parliaments to take some kind of a consultative role in what comes from Europe, absolutely nothing of that, ha of that kind is happening in, in, in this country. Absolutely nothing. Uh, so is you know, that a yes or a no to chairing that committee? No, 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 no well, uh, uh, chairing the committee is, 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 is irrelevant. Getting the committee up and running and uh, making sure that it works is, it would be my priority. And you think we will see it? Well, I mean, it, it, it's supposedly agreed at Cabinet and um, I don't think there's a huge uh, appetite for it because a lot of the permanent uh, government in this country uh, much prefers to send its diplomats out to, out to um, Brussels um, discuss with uh, at a diplomatic level and to interact with the European Parliament and the Commission and the Council of Ministers and the last thing they really want to do is to have somebody looking over their shoulder in Leinster House. Maybe especially if it's you. <laughs> <laughs> but listen, thanks a million for okay. coming along to talk to us thanks today on the Europolitics po Podcast. Senator Michael McDool, thanks also to Sandra and Paul. And thank you for joining us. If you enjoyed the podcast, please subscribe and leave a review. And we're back with you again next Thursday. Talk then. Bye-bye.